Alright guys, so this is SSD, Sustainable Self-Development, a podcast for people who want to get ahead in fitness and in life without driving themselves crazy. So if you want to look up a year from now and think, damn, I came a long way, but you don't want to burn out in the process as you get there, you came to the right place. We'll get into today's episode in just a second, but just want to let you know that we have an awesome community on Facebook in the form of a group which you can join, where we discuss and debate things, drop ideas ideas, debate over which person to interview for the next podcast, and all that good stuff. So go to Facebook, type in sustainable self-development, or you can just check the show notes here and click the link there, and you'll find the sustainable self-development Facebook group, and you can join. Also, not sure where you're listening to this right now, but this podcast is available on a variety of platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud, Podbeam, and YouTube. You can find it on all of these platforms if you just type in sustainable self-development because luckily nobody is weird enough to name themselves in such a way except me so look me up on these places and follow the show by subscribing so that you don't miss future episodes and with that let's get into the show started okay so uh hey everybody welcome um no, that's not how I start. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for tuning in. <laughs> and I'm very excited to welcome back Mr. Jacob Skepis. Now I know how to actually pronounce his name. <laughs> and um, he has been on my podcast before. There we talked about more kind of broad topics related to fitness, nutrition, and training. And we are going to talk a little bit about those things again. Um, but we are kind of going to talk about some more uh, mental aspects that are related to fitness, but we will see how that goes. But uh, first of all, I want to welcome Jacob, and um, I guess let's start with my first question, which is how long till the end of your contest prep, which you're currently doing for a bodybuilding show? Thanks for having me. A real pleasure to be back on the show. So yeah, we're currently in the midst of the contest prep at the moment. To be honest, I can't remember off the top of my head how many weeks in I am at the moment. All I know is I started in the second week of January uh, in the lead up to getting on stage in season B in Australia, which is around September, October this year. So approximately six months out at the moment and been going, yeah, for about give or take 10 10 weeks now. Damn, that's insane. Because like I'm I'm looking at your pictures and um, I was just scrolling through your um, your Instagram. It's pretty creepy to say, <laughs> but anyway. Um, and I was I, I actually I was looking at your physique, and I, I was thinking like if I were you, I would step on stage right now because like you look like Arnold or something. Like you, I mean, obviously by modern bodybuilding standards, it's not completely striated glutes level leanness, but it, I mean you're pretty much as lean as kind of the classic bodybuilder era where how those guys looked at that time. So. I don't know. I mean, I don't even know how long ago it was that I actually asked this question of someone, but what would you estimate your body fat percentage to be at at the moment? <laughs> um, I would say around the 10% mark at present. Uh, I don't think uh, I don't think I'm sub 10% just yet. To be honest, it's not something I think about too much. It's funny because I know this is going to tie into a lot of our conversation and discussion today, but like you were saying, the standard of uh, lean and body fat percentages required uh, in the current natural bodybuilding era are stupendously low. And if I were to compare where I'm at now to where I need to be or where I want to be, I do feel quite out of shape. And I guess that's quite alarming. 
Um, it's not something that I'm necessarily um, concerned with or that eats away at my self-esteem, so to speak. But yeah, I don't feel like I'm where I need to be. But I know that a lot of other people um, look at my physique now and go, wow, this guy's six months out. He could get on stage in a month or two if you really wanted and do quite well. But as you mentioned, the standard now is ridiculous. So, you know, being 10% um, simply doesn't cut it, but it does look good. Um, it doesn't feel great for me um, just because having been uh, a bit of a chubby kid pretty much all my life, my body fat settling point is probably up around the, you know, 13, 14% mark. Uh, if we were to use uh, my current estimated uh, body fat percentage as a gauge of where I'm sitting, I'm a little bit below my settling range. So it does feel a little bit uncomfortable, but yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment. Uh, a lot of work to do, um, but fortunately we've got a lot of time and I'm in good hands working with the master himself, Alberto Nunes from 3DMJ. Right, and uh, okay, so right around the ten percent mark. And what do you weigh around, like sub eighty kilos, something like that? Yeah, so fluctuating at the moment, but I've uh, hit a new low last week of seventy nine point two, and I'm five foot eight and a half, five foot nine on a good day. So, yeah, so pretty uh, short and stocky, uh, if that's anything to go by. But yeah, around the seventy nine kilo mark. Last time I was on stage, I got down to seventy two kilos. Um, and I suspect that if I want to bring that, you know, Brad Miner, Alberto Nunez, uh, you know, kind of conditioning, I'm going to need to get down to 72 kilos again um, and obviously have hopefully put on you know, a good two to three kilos in my four-year off-season, um, which means I'll be bringing some uh, better conditioning uh, than the last time I stepped on stage. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, and, and just for the listeners, I mean, they can go ahead and check out your pictures. Um like you're, I mean, you're obviously one of those guys, like you, your physique kind of reminds me of uh, Jeff Alberts' physique. Like um, <laughs> you obviously picked your parents pretty intelligently in, in that, in that front. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just, I can't even imagine, it's the same thing with him. Like I'm looking at uh, his progress now and I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking, how will this look like at the end? I'm actually curious. Like it's, it's just exciting to watch uh, what the end product will be. Um, but anyway, um, to slowly transition into what we are going to talk about is, um, you know, now you've been in this game for a long time and you've competed before and uh, you've learned a tremendous amount about your body and, and also how to handle things uh, from a mental perspective. And, and now, obviously, you're, you're in very good hands, but also yourself have uh, coached through people, uh, processes like, like you're going through uh, right now. And... You know, I have no doubts that that your approach is a lot more balanced and reasonable than it used to be back in the day. But um, do you catch yourself every once in a while um, as you're going through this, thinking like, "Hold on, Jacob, you're about to do you're about to do something stupid like you would have done back in the day. Like you're tempted to do one of those things again. But remember, just stay reasonable, stay balanced. You know better now. Do you catch yourself uh, during these moments uh, at all these days?" Yeah, so I think it's human nature as we venture into the unknown to revert back to our past experiences or at least what we know works. And for me, this contest prep is very much um, in stark contrast to my prior contest prep back when I was 20 and 21, so 2013 uh, and 2012, uh, where it was very much a rigid all or nothing you know, list of five foods, 
fasted cardio, supplements, fat burners, um, high volume, you know, etching in the lines kind of workouts, uh, just just go ham kind of mentality. Whereas this time around, there's a lot more thought, care, and as you mentioned, balance towards the approach. So there is a lot of uncertainty for me because in trying to achieve what I know is quite difficult for anyone, uh, there are times where I have found myself, you know, steering back to doing uh, some of the practices that I would previously engage in, not uh, in their true sense, as in I'm not eliminating all foods or doing stupid workouts and things like that. But I know that, you know, some of those uh, tendencies arise in a bodybuilding contest prep for good reason. And that is because they help us survive, right? Um, you know, semi-starvation yeah. is not an easy process for anybody. And often we we do engage in dangerous practices um, more so because they make the process easier because we don't have as much temptation, um, you know, which is why a more rigid or a, you know, less flexible diet can be beneficial in a contest prep because it just, you know, th- those hyperpalatable foods um, can spark, you know, some insatiable hunger and lead to overeating and all those kind of things. You know, fasted cardio can just be a great habit, uh, even though not necessarily any beneficial for, you know, the liberation of, um, you know, body fat. It can be a good habit to engage in because it creates structure and consistency, which uh, take out a lot of the, you know, willpower and motivation that you don't have in a contest prep. So there have been uh, little glimpses of things that have uh, been, I guess, uh, a reliance for me in the past, such as the cardio. Mm-hmm. I found myself, you know, steering towards getting up into the, in the morning and you know doing my cardio faster. Not necessarily for the same reason, but I guess in the back of my head, it's just it's there. And some of the scars that were left from my first two contest preps, uh, they're, they're still very much real. Um, so there are some yeah uneasy emotions when I do find myself uh, adopting the behaviors I used to employ back when I was a young, naive bodybuilder. But at the same time, I know full well that I'm a different person now. I'm a lot more mature. And with that comes you know, a lot more poise and being level-headed about the decision-making process uh, you know, with, on a daily basis within the contest prep. Yeah, it's uh, the reason reason I was asking this is because right now I'm going through a cut, which is I mean, that's nothing compared to uh, what you're what you're doing. And basically, I'm looking to get down to the level where you're at now and you're like six months out. <laughs> but um, still, um, I, I just caught myself uh, the other day having these uh, just like unreasonable minor little concerns about, OK, how much uh, how much should I eat in this meal or how I'm going to manage that event mm-hmm. or something, which in the grand scheme of things, these things are just so meaningless. And there are so like the bigger picture matters so much more than these little acute choices. Um, but I but it's just an instinctive thing that you gravitate back towards. And I guess um, when you understand that yeah, it's it's a normal thing that your brain generates because you're doing something which is kind of unnatural in the sense that you're fighting against your body's natural instincts. Then you can kind of view it in the right perspective and it won't necessarily go away, the urge to do these behaviors, but you can kind of better keep it under control. So yeah, that's um, very well said. And so um, this is, I mean, how many how many contest preps have you done before this? So I'd done two back in 2012, and then I backed it up the following year, uh, which was probably the worst decision I ever made, uh, and competed again uh, in 2013. So it's been, 
yeah, five years since I last stepped on stage. Right. Um, so I've heard you mention uh, not long ago on um, Revive Stronger podcast, uh, which was one of the things that um, sparked me to uh, to get you on again or invite you back on again, um, that after one of your contest preps, you powered through and, and uh, it, was, it was a very tough one, but you managed to get really shredded. But after that, um, you experienced some not very pleasant kind of blow up uh, in weight. Um, can you share how that uh, went exactly? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, sharing experiences like this is something that not, not a lot of bodybuilders talk openly about. There are obviously a few who do discuss it, but I think it's quite taboo uh, in the fitness industry to talk about our not so pleasant past. And, you know, I try to lead by example in uh, demonstrating how unnecessary or dire the consequences of bodybuilding can be when it's not approached correctly. Um, and yeah, for sure, I'll be glad to share that experience. So basically, I had been dieting from the minute I got into the whole fitness thing. From the age of 16 to 21, I would have been in a calorie deficit. And I got really good at the whole starvation thing. And I remember back from yeah, 17 to 19 years of age, I didn't cheat for nearly two years on my diet and it was a low-carb diet, Damn. like I said, list of five to ten foods. But then the binging started to become a regular occurrence. Instagram was gaining momentum and you know, I was following a lot of fitness professionals who only exacerbated my obsessive nature with this whole getting lean thing. And I started to get into the fitness industry uh, as a coach when I was 18 and eventually uh, opened my first facility and I thought that one way I could fast track my, my name uh, and career was to be a competitive bodybuilder and to take my conditioning to the next level to show people uh, that I knew what I was doing, even though I had absolutely zero clue as to the best approach to reducing body fat, um, competitive bodybuilding and all the rest of it. So basically the first competitive season was, yeah, quite rigid as you would expect. Uh, I did quite well, but then had uh, quite a big blowout after the show, but it wasn't too bad the first time around. Um, I had a five month, you know, break between starting my next prep. And this was when I learned about flexible dieting. Uh, during this period because I was so displeased with, you know, the restriction and um, just the suffering that came with, you know, eating five to 10 foods. And I was fortunate that I'm a cool, pretty quick learner and was starting to stumble across some of the right people such as Lyle McDonald, Alan Aragon. I learned about the concept of flexible dieting. So my second contest prep, I I almost rebelled against the clean eating uh, bro type mentality by including such a variety of foods that it really ended up biting me in the ass. I remember eating ice cream every day for the entire contest prep just because I wanted to, you know, stick the middle finger to uh, the chicken and broccoli diet. So that contest prep uh, was tough because I didn't truly understand what a flexible diet was. I was eating a greater variety of foods, but I still had a very rigid mindset uh, towards my nutrition um, in terms of I had to meet my calories to the T, my macros had to be on the gram. And if I went over, then, you know, my whole diet was a complete write-off for that day. And there was some uh, binge episodes uh, during that contest prep. I remember one night, uh, my brother was actually competing with me in this season and he woke up to me in the pantry um, just devouring food. And he was like, what are you doing? We're three weeks out. 
And I was like, Samuel, I can't help it. Take it away from me. His name's Sam. Um, and yeah, like it was a pretty dark moment. Like we were both suffering and here he was, my little brother having to pull me away from, uh, you know, eating slices of bread with butter and all this kind of stuff. So it was quite bad and I was only 21. So I was still very young. I, you know, hadn't matured and experienced a lot in life and you know to me bodybuilding was my life and it was my identity and I felt like such a fraud um, and failure for for being somebody who couldn't stick to the diet but then having to wake up the next day go to work and coach people and you know tell them to adhere to their diet um, it was it was quite a mental struggle it was very tormenting um, because I felt like such a fraud in that I was leading this completely um, opposing lifestyle uh, to what people thought I was. Um, and I felt very much, uh, you know, torn by my actions and my intentions. And it was it was very tough. But nonetheless, that prep, uh, I did okay. Ended up getting pretty damn lean just as a function of hard work and being able to, you know, kill myself, uh, you know, when I needed to, to make sure that I, I got the job done. But after that competition, um, things in my life really went sour. So my partner um, broke up with me during the prep just because, as you would expect, you become extremely selfish during a contest prep. I didn't know this. Um, I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know how to communicate that to her. Um, and she just got fed up, left me. And again, you know, the just the perpetual uh, frustration that came with the binge eating and the shame um, associated with that and just comparing myself to other fitness professionals who always seem to have it together and never binge or cheat on their diet on social media. Um, that comparison really caused my self-esteem to take a hit. And at the end of that contest prep, I ended up putting on 20 kilograms uh, within a couple of months. And I had my, my facility was open at this stage. And yeah, I was a mess physically, mentally, I couldn't regain control of my eating no matter how hard I tried because I was just trapped in this cycle of comparing myself to other people in the industry, feeling like a failure, you know, being shameful of not being able to walk the walk and, you know, lead by example. And I ended up taking myself um, off to Thailand. So I booked a trip, uh, one-way ticket to Thailand. Um, I had a return flight booked. Uh, but it was a open-ended return flight and I ended up extending my trip three times. And the reason was I knew that I had to escape and not to escape myself, um, but to escape the, the fitness lifestyle because it was causing me more harm than good. I had to reconnect with myself. I had to learn how to regain control of my thoughts and emotions. Like I said, I needed to disconnect from the fitness industry and the pressure of looking a certain way and just learn how to be normal because from the age of 16 to 21, I had literally removed myself from all socializing uh, because I didn't want to eat food. I didn't want other people to see what I was eating. It was quite serious. And at my 21st birthday, I didn't eat a single portion of food. I didn't drink one alcoholic beverage. I actually went into the kitchen uh, after the cake and had a protein shake only to have, you know, my friends, family and girlfriend at the time just come over and say, what are you doing? You know, that's ridiculous. Um, I was pretty hardcore, man. Like, and when I say hardcore, I mean that um, in the sense that I was very rigid. There was no balance because it was all or nothing. I was either on the diet or completely off the diet. And I 
was so good at restricting myself and just suffering that I you know, could handle any uh, you know comments, criticisms, or external pressures. But it all boiled up, and it got to a point where I just craved normalcy. And I took myself off to Thailand, and I was there for three weeks on my own. Um, and literally, man, I walked into a gym in the first week, and I was like, okay, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to regain, you know, my physique. I'm going to get myself down 10 kilos by the end of the trip. I'm going to start eating clean, um, tidy myself up and come back and everyone will be like, oh, Jacob's, you know, looking good again. He's back to normal. But I walked into the gym on that first uh, week when I was there. I was actually in uh, Koh Samui and I just walked straight back out. And it was funny. I walked straight out, got on my motorbike because that's one of my uh, little pleasures. And again, everybody was doing it over there. And I thought, well, that's what normal people are doing. So I'm going to do that. I'm not going to do cardio. I'm going to get a motorbike and I'm going to ride. I've never ridden a motorbike before, but I'm going to do it. So I rode to uh, one of the bars, Ark Bar in Thailand. I'm sure many of the listeners who have been might be familiar with this. And it was in the afternoon and I just thought, you know what? Screw it. And I, mind you, I hadn't drank alcohol for a very, very long time. So I walked up to the bar and I just got a drink sat there on my own and I never really smoked a cigarette or anything that resembled that. And I thought, you know what, stuff it. I'm going to try this thing. It was disgusting. And yeah, I just, I was like, screw this. I'm just going to do what other people do because I'm so sick and freaking tired of being that fitness guy. And it was almost rebelling against, you know, everything I thought I wanted. And the trip transpired um, and I just started focusing on meeting people. I focused on, you know, just eating whatever was put on the table, you know, like I'd go to dinner and I'd say to, you know, whoever I was with because I'd end up going, you know, meeting other Australians and other, you know, tourists from England, from the US, all over the world and, you know, I'd go for dinner or lunch or whatever and, you know, I'd say I'll have whatever you're having and I just learned to eat just whatever was on offer. And I really focused on being grateful. And like I mentioned, one of the main reasons that I went there was because I was very self-aware of what was going on internally. Um, I've always been quite an introspective uh, individual and quite aware of my thoughts, which is why I I guess I was so good at this whole bodybuilding thing was because I learned to control my thoughts, just not in a very balanced or healthy manner. Um, But I needed to regain control of that uh, in a less uh, restrictive and you know, harmful way. So yeah, I, I found a lot of usefulness and, you know, enjoyment from just being present and learning not to stress about what I was going to look like if I ate a certain food or how much, you know, water I would retain or, you know, how much cardio I would have to perform if I wanted to, you know, get my conditioning back or anything like that. I just, I would just be able. And I think this was, probably one of the most pivotal moments in my life and it really it changed the course and the direction that my life took because I I became human and I felt a sense of release and relief um you know day by day it was it was quite overwhelming just how you know this weight on my shoulders was slowly being lifted every single moment that I spent, you know, just in Thailand on my own, you know, playing pool, watching the sunrise. I remember going into the ocean. Um, I actually caught up with a friend uh, from Australia in Thailand. We went into the ocean one night and they have these, uh, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head what they're called because my knowledge outside of anything fitness related is dismal. Uh, But these, these fish in the water that, you know, illuminate 
um, you know, when you splash the water, mm. you know. Um, and I remember just watching them going, wow, this is, this is what it's like to live. And oh, it was yeah. liberating. Yeah. It was truly liberating, you know, watching the sunrise, watching the sunset, you know, dancing, you know, with absolute randoms, you know, things that I had never done before. And as a 21-year-old male, I was 22 at this stage, um, you know, having never experienced at least some degree of normalcy, it was refreshing and it was what I needed to evolve as a human. And, I, you know, it allowed me to reconnect with who I am, um, prioritize, you know, what I want because I think often at times when we – when we experience something in complete contrast to what we think we desire or what we do truly desire, we start to appreciate that thing a lot more and, you know, how much we do value uh, wanting to have that thing and what we're willing to do to, you know, pursue it and what we have to give up and all the rest of it. So yeah, by the end of the trip, you know, it was, it was phenomenal. I, to be honest, Abel, you know, full transparency here on this one, you know, I'd slept with two women up until I was 22. Uh, both of my girlfriend, I had a girlfriend of five years and then a girlfriend of, you know, um, 18 months until she left me at the end of that contest prep. Um, and, you know, by societal standards, that's not a lot of women these days, you know, by the age of 22, most men are, you know, out there on the weekends, you know, getting jiggy with it, so to speak. Yeah. And in that Thailand trip, you know, I let my creative juices and, you know, my bodily fluids go and, you know, I, I just experienced life, man. And it was, you know, I know your podcast is called the self-development podcast and this experience for me was game changing. It was the most self-development that I could have ever asked for. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I probably will look back on when I'm, you know, in my thirties and forties and go, are oh, you idiot? Why did you do that? But at the same time, you know, I'm very grateful for, you know, having the number one, the opportunity, because I don't think that everyone is in a position to, you know, afford such a luxury like that. Um, but obviously a lot of my hard work paid off and I was able to take time away from, you know, the grind, so to speak, and go do this for myself. But number two, you know, being able to recognize that I needed help and not help in the traditional sense where we rely on somebody else, but help in, in finding myself. And I think that sometimes, you know, mental health issues aside, the best way to help, you know, yourself is to, to do something for yourself, um, and to get to know yourself. And that experience was very, very, uh, beneficial in terms of my self-awareness, um, and just as a whole, my self-esteem, because I realized, you know, how little value, um, you know, comparison actually holds. And when we can constantly compare ourselves to this objective standard, um, you know, the pressure that that places on us and how that detriments our self-esteem. Um, and then obviously our actions, behaviors and everything snowballs from there. But this experience really highlighted to me that, you know, the only standard you should be comparing yourself against is the one that, you know, you hold yourself against and that is your beliefs, your values and you know what it means to be you. So yeah, man, that was the Thailand trip. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Damn, dude, you're amazing. <laughs> I mean, seriously, someone should direct the movie from this. Um, I didn't even know. <laughs> seriously, not like uh, I didn't even know where to start. Um, you know, because there are just so many aspects of this. I'm, I'm sure that um, as you were talking about your initial struggles, I predict that a lot of people listening to this will have the feeling which I had while listening to this that, yep, done that, done that, but you just took everything to a whole different level than most of us have. Um, but you know. A lot of the, the initial struggles you, you mentioned, how you just 
felt like an imposter or just a flawed uh, fitness professional, like a flawed bodybuilder, that you can't practice what you preach, how hurtful or painful that was. Um, I think that that's uh, so many of us have experienced that at certain points. You know, I certainly have, you know, I was talking about certain things and certain aspects of mindset. I was talking about, you know, the sustainable self-development concepts while I was I was not practicing that, you know, I knew objectively what to mm. do or what the right thing would have been. And at the same time, I was falling off the wagon and I, I just felt terrible dur during that. And I know a lot of people, even those who are not necessarily content producers, have the same feeling. You know, they want to think about themselves as these rational, you know, machines who who can just tweak things and, and do cool stuff with their bodies and, and transform into something better. And at the same time, uh, they fall off the wagon or they screw things up. And um, it's interesting how you mentioned in the beginning, I'm kind of just going through one by one about certain things you said. You mentioned how for like whatever, two years or even more, you didn't cheat on your diet. One would think that, you know, two years clean pretty much means forever clean because that's a really long ass stride. Mm. Uh, and there are some people for whom that's probably true. For example, Steve Hall. Um the way he speaks, I tend to think that, yeah, this guy is never going to have a binge in his life. Like that this guy just seems so rational, <laughs> like like just so unshakable. But you, you never know. And uh, I, I just uh, interacted with a guy who just finished a very successful diet, uh, did, done everything right. You know, diet breaks frequently, practiced maintenance. Um, in the meanwhile, he kind of embarked on personal development. And if you listen to him speaking and see some of his writing, you would think that this guy not only has dieting figured out, but he has the entire life figured out. Like this guy is mm. rocking on. And then just uh, you know, a week ago, he wrote to me that he had a binge and he's confused. Why did this happen? And you know, I, I just imagine the sheer stress he must be under that he screwed up after such a good stride. And here you are. Um, it, I guess it's, it's almost comforting for people to see that here you are, this guy who is a successful bodybuilder, has a great physique, a successful businessman, um, says all these cool things and, and is an inspiration for a lot of people. And here you have this story, which you've experienced deaths in this regard that a lot of us can only imagine how this, that must be like. And the final thing I want to reflect on now, I went on for way too long for a podcast host, but the, the you know, <laughs> how you mentioned, uh, this, I mean, the, the, the way you describe what happened to you in, in Thailand, that kind of reminded me how uh, sometimes you do things, for example, Berge Fagerli, when he was on my podcast and he talked about how doing a zero-carb carnivorous diet and eliminating all plant foods, that was like a hard reset on his digestive tract because he suffered from digestive issues for a long time. And mm. it's kind of a weird analogy, but in, in that case, uh, you know, tweaking fiber and introducing these different prebiotic plant foods was not the solution to normalize his gut flora. It was actually to go without fiber altogether. And, you know, I'm sure that someone could have rationalized in your situation after blowing up after the bodybuilding show being burnt out that, yeah, maybe doing a very smart diet in, with very measured strategies of this diet break here and that refeed there and tweaking your carb intake this way and journaling everything and whatever, seeking a nutritionist or a counselor or something, that could be a solution. But it was actually something entirely different, which was just taking a break from the entire process and just resetting your entire mindset. And that's ultimately what helped you. And the last thing I want to say is that, you know, a couple of months ago, I, I experienced something quite similar. I didn't go to Thailand, but 
I had a period which was not the healthiest physically. I mean, there were days when I probably ingested more alcohol than more grams of alcohol than protein. And, um, <laughs> you know, I partied and, and whatever was just YOLOing. I didn't put out a podcast episode for like two months. I'm not proud of that period per se, but that was exactly what was needed to reset my mind and be, make me more fired up, um, than ever about, you know, fitness and, uh, and just improving myself in that regard. So, uh, do you want to reflect on what I just said or can I throw my next question at yeah. you? Yeah, I just want to add to that that I think these kind of experiences are only valuable if you learn something from it and more importantly, you take away strategies to make uh, you know your lifestyle better and to allow you to develop your you know physique aspirations in the context of this discussion more sustainable. And one thing that I took away from this whole Thailand experience was, okay, well, I've gone six years without, you know, allowing myself any form of, you know, quote unquote, relief, um, and I've blown up. Perhaps I should maybe maybe uh, incorporate, you know, more frequent, you know, periods of relief. So it was actually after this Thailand trip that I've, I enjoyed myself so much that from that year onwards, I booked uh, a trip to Bali every six months mm. for seven days. So bi-yearly, I go to Bali and I've been now 11 times uh, since back then. Mm-hmm. And that has, you know, changed, you know, how I approach my work, my, you know, fitness goals, because I know that, you know, I can work hard and it's, there's going to be this relief. And I think the best way to look at this is to compare it and to use the analogy of, you know, it, what a deload is for hard overloading mesocycles. You know, we can only push the body and push the mind so much before, you know, the summation of fatigue accumulates beyond what we can recover from. And, you know, then we start to see all the adverse outcomes of, you know, over non-functional overreaching. And if it continues, overtraining, even though that's very, very rare, all the rest of it. But, you know, I'm sure listeners will get the drift. But I think the key takeaway here is to, you know, implement strategies, um, you know, as you would in your training to your mindset. You know, and, you know, we can reverse engineers from, you know, say, a you know, bi-yearly break, whether it's going overseas, whether it's just, you know, taking time away from the fitness industry or anything that causes you stress and pressure. And, you know, I have one day a week where I just don't, you know, touch anything fitness related. Um, you know, unfortunately, there are cases um, or sorry, circumstances where, you know, I go some weeks where by circumstance, I have to, you know, work around the clock uh, as, as a function of running my own business. But I think if you're in a position where you don't have to do that, I think, you know, we should manage anything that is a perceived stress or pressure, um, you know, on an acute time scale and on a chronic time scale. And I think that that can definitely help mitigate these, you know, blow ups, so to speak, that I experienced. But yeah, just to speak on your last point, Abel, uh, yeah, strategies uh, and thinking prospectively about how you can manage yourself is extremely important. And yeah, I've been five years and I haven't had a blow up like that. So good, good sign that, you know, I guess this is working for me and N equals one, right? But I think the the concept is important for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that a lot of people who might be listening to this and, and, and maybe are thinking, uh, probably not a lot of people knowing my audience, but maybe there, there are always some people who are not, who have not experienced any of this and they are just living their life like a machine and they are doing the stuff like you did on your birthday of, you know, drinking protein shake instead of trying the <laughs> chocolate cake that, you know, um, 
And if you're, and I know that I've had periods in my life when that kind of a behavior actually caused me, it actually made me fulfilled. It was, it was exciting to me. I, I enjoy, I, I was doing these neurotic things, but I was enjoying it. I didn't perceive it as a, a sacrifice that is making my life harder. It was, I, I felt proud. I, it was meaningful to me to do these things. And it, it was a slow, kind of, it, it just slowly snuck up on me. And I think this happens to a lot of people where you do these kinds of behaviors and you don't notice that transition point where this thing that excited you for a while is no, no longer exciting to you. Now you're just doing it compulsively and it is in control of your life as opposed to, you know, vice versa. And I guess that's, a lot of people don't notice this point because it's hard because, you know, like you mm. said at the beginning, you just do, you gravitate towards behaviors that you're used to and, or what have served you in the past. And when you're in that situation, you know, maybe if you would have approached your training and nutrition with a more balanced uh, kind of mindset from an earlier point onwards, you wouldn't have needed this whole break in Thailand. But it got, it's gotten to the point where, you know, you had to walk out of a gym in disgust as you walked in there, um, which... You know, hopefully not everybody has to get to this point, but mm. when you're there, then maybe it is actually necessary to just push a hard reset. Um, so uh, what, what you mentioned about the trips to Bali is also very interesting. And uh, yeah, I, I guess the main lesson from that is there is a time and, and uh, there is a time for everything. You know, even Mike Isretel, uh, who is, you know, if people are following his work, there is not a question that that guy is a machine in the, <laughs> from a training and nutrition perspective. But even he says that, you know, every once in a while he has, you know, just a week where he is just going on a round trip. He's not training. He's just eating whatever, waking up whenever, going to bed whenever. And that helps him to to uh, get going. So um, another thing I, I wanted to ask you about this, this trip is like how after how long was it that... Um, you felt like, okay, I am ready to return. You know, I'm, I'm ready to return to my machine-like lifestyle and to reignite my fitness uh, pursuits once again. Whew. Yeah, now you're, you've taken a trip down memory lane. I've got to think hard and uh, long about this one. But uh -huh. it definitely wasn't within uh, 14 days because I, I had a flight uh, booked or I had my ticket at least uh, booked for, I think it was the, the 15th or 16th day. Um, but it was a, I could change the flight to whatever date that I, I wanted to. Um, but I, and I did change it. So I obviously wasn't ready after two weeks. Um, and I, I lasted, I think off the top of my head, it was around like 23 or 24 days or something, something along those lines. So it probably was just after the two week mark when I started to, yeah, miss, I started to miss, you know, all of the routine and structure um, that I that I had going back in Melbourne, and I, I realized that this you know lifestyle of you know doing whatever wasn't very fulfilling or meaningful to me. And again, I think this was an important uh, turning point because it it taught me what my true values and beliefs are, and you know that is to be someone who is committed. Um, and passionate towards something, and I, I felt I felt very lost, you know, after that fourteen day mark. I, I do remember distinctly, you know, just sitting in the hotel room on my own, watching movie after movie, you know, ordering uh, room service, thinking, yeah, this this isn't really giving me, you know, the same level of satisfaction that you know waking up and you know going to the gym or writing a blog or you know coaching somebody does, and I missed a lot of the things that. 
I was previously doing. I think that's, uh, yeah, equally as important as the recalibration of the system um, and, you know, getting away from all of the hardcore neurotic behaviors that, you know, some some of us fitness enthusiasts do adopt. Um, but I think that's a lot, a lot of the time what makes us who we are. And you will quickly realize that, like I did, um, that being somebody you're not is nowhere near as enjoyable as, you know, living um, and being true to who it is you really are. But at times, you know, like you mentioned, Abel, there's a fine line between doing what you like, what you enjoy, what you're passionate about and what gives you satisfaction and then overdoing it. And I think that, you know, these kind of blow-ups or, um, you know, pushbacks from, you know, the mind and the body can often help us, you know, see where that boundary lies. Right. Um, now, what I, I would be curious about is, um, do you, when you're working with someone, do you have these kinds of um, red flags that you're looking for when you see some sorts of um, really neurotic or uh, when you see that things are getting out of control, things are getting out of hand, that you recommend something similar for people to do? Not necessarily to the same degree that you're sending them to Thailand, but just just telling someone at some point that, look, dude, the solution for you right now isn't to tweak your macros even better or to take this diet break or eat, eat at maintenance. You actually need a, a break from the process. Does it ever happen or it never has to go to that length? Yeah, it definitely does happen, man. Like I've had a client who was a hardcore bodybuilder and he was so engrossed in the process and I know very well that he lived and breathed everything bodybuilding and the advice I gave him was just to step away from things for a while, you know, just take a week off the gym, take a week off dieting and just see how he felt. Um, and this was not too long ago, actually. And the reason I advise that was because, like I said, sometimes, you know, you need to have what you love taken away from you to truly appreciate it, um, to recalibrate the system and come back with that vigor and that spark that we, we often lose when we become obsessed or so entrenched in a certain thing. And yeah, I advise him to take a week off the gym. Obviously, no Thailand trips were uh, planned into things. Um, but I did recommend, you know, not tracking his calories, not following a meal plan. I said, you know, don't cook oats for breakfast. Don't, you know, just have a bowl of cereal. Like just eat whatever the hell you want. Eat when you want. I said one week isn't going to cause you to lose all your gains. And, you know, obviously uh, re reminded him that, you know, muscle memory hangs around quite a while and he's not going to lose all his hard-earned gains in just seven days of, you know, no training. And I said, and when you're ready, go back to the gym and do what you feel like. Screw following, uh, you know, well-structured, you know, program that, you know, implements progression schemes, you know, has the right amount of volume, frequency, intensity, um, and all of that. And I said, you know, why did you start lifting? I said, go into the gym and just do what feels right. And yeah, after I think it was eight or nine days, he, he called me up and he said, dude, I went to the gym tonight. He's like, I put, you know, some trance on, I did supersets, I did drop sets, and it was freaking awesome. He goes, I had so much fun. He said, and I remember why I love this. And I'm like, man, that is that is awesome. Like, you know, we always talk about, you know, doing what is optimal. Um, and I think sometimes in cases like this, especially when you're dealing with somebody who is a little bit burnt out and just taking things a little bit too far, that <clears throat> steering away from optimal and allowing them to do what, what feels right, and sometimes that takes a while for people to figure out, 
Um, not everyone gets it in eight or nine days or even, you know, three to four weeks. Sometimes it, it can be longer and I've definitely seen that uh, with powerlifters especially because they become so obsessed with the numbers. They're doing three lifts and they just wear themselves into the ground that, you know, often powerlifters when they are, uh, yeah, when they take a break, it's, it's for quite a while and they often, you know, turn to completely different sports. But that's a little bit uh, out of uh, context. But, yeah. yeah, I think sometimes taking a break is is what is needed. And I think many people fear taking a break. Um, but in reality, should be planning in uh, some time away from what they love so they, they do get back that, that passion, that vigor, and just that, that lust for, you know, what it is they want. Yeah. Um, now, uh, kind of just to wrap this up slowly and, uh, you know, you, your story and, and, you know, the, the things that you've said, I mean, this, like, um, I will probably find a lot of occasions and kind of excuses to play in clips from your story whenever I can, because I think, uh, it will just be so enlightening for, for so many people. I'm really grateful that you shared what you shared here. And, you know, one thing that I often think about, um, kind of when I think of myself as this fitness enthusiast, I know that I never be, probably I will never be a bodybuilder. I don't have the genetics. I don't even necessarily have the desire to, to become a, a bodybuilder. Maybe as one, one day as kind of a personal challenge, I will do it. Um, but I often think about how I imagine myself in the long term, kind of what sort of a fitness identity I want for myself. Like, how do I imagine my long-term life? How do, how do I imagine fitness fitting into that? And I heard you mention before that um, kind of you're deliberately doing this bodybuilding show now because it's sort of at the right time in the context of your entire life and the life of your kids, how they will see you as, as a dad. Um and that you don't plan competing after this for a while. So um, once this competition will be over with, uh, how do you kind of how do you see your uh, long term fitness um, ambitions? Like, what will be your goals, and how do you do you plan to reframe some of the things that you have been doing up until now in that front? Yes. Yeah, so I I am a planner. And probably my biggest downfall, Abel, is that I am very strategic with uh, the way I operate. I do think quite long term. And I think it's probably these experiences when I was younger that have forced me to be, um, you know, so futuristic in the way that I, I go about things. So next year for me is going to be very much focused on the business uh, which is JPS, so my uh, two facilities that I have in Melbourne and the coaching company that I run, um, as well as family, more importantly. Um, you know, there's no holidays planned this year, no Bali trips. Um, so despite what I said, you know, unfortunately, when the time calls for it, you can't always, uh, you know, do what you know is right. Sometimes you do have to suck it up a little bit and get on with things. And this year is one of those years for me. So next year, I'll be taking my family to Bali. I will be prioritizing wearing the dad hat, the coach hat, and the business hat, and not necessarily, uh, you know, being the bodybuilder and attaching my identity solely uh, to the sport. I will obviously continue to lift and eat. You know, obviously I'm going to eat because otherwise I would die. But <laughs> I'm going to eat uh, like I would normally eat, which is you know a high protein diet. My calories are going to obviously change depending on what the occasion calls for. And yeah, I think just uh, shifting the the primary identity that I want to assume, um, not to say that this year I'm disregarding, you know, the res 
responsibilities I have to my family and my business. But obviously, bodybuilding will take uh, you know, a bit of a four foreground in terms of where I focus my time and energy simply due to the demands of the sport. Um, but once that's all said and done, it'll be slowly transitioning back into normalcy, getting myself to a healthy body fat percentage, a healthy mindset and, you know, mental states, and then just doing life, man, you know, bodybuilding, uh, is a very much a part of my life now. It isn't my entire life. Um, and I aim to keep it that way throughout this prep. Um, and obviously keep the duration at which it does become, uh, that all encompassing and, you know, I guess suffocating experience, um, to a minimum. So yeah, the goals next year are to just keep lifting, Keep being uh, or trying to be an amazing dad, an amazing partner, uh, do the best I can with my, you know, my business. And who knows, I might get back into some powerlifting because I just love lifting weights. I am competitive by nature. Um, so, you know, not getting up there and challenging myself in one way, shape or another always seems to eat at me. So I think there may be some powerlifting on the cards, but, you know, it's too early to tell. Right. No, that that's great. And um, last uh, last two questions for you, man. Uh, so um, I know that you mentioned earlier that uh, it, you find it important to be grateful for the things that you can be grateful for. Um, do you have some sort of like what what do you do, or do you do anything uh, personal development wise these days? Do you uh, have a gratitude journal or something of of that nature? Yeah, so just in my phone, I have a notes and I have a list of things that I'm grateful for and I just add to that every day. And yeah, when I find myself down and out or struggling and to, again, keep up with the theme of transparency in this episode, uh, the last month has been quite difficult for me on a personal level, um, just with a number of challenges at work, um, change, um, you know, within my life uh, has proven to be more difficult than I uh, initially expected. So I've been pulling out the gratitude journal on the daily or, you know, whenever I feel uh, like, you know, those negative thoughts just start creeping in a little bit uh, too much or becoming too overbearing. Um, and I read it out three to five times. One of the other self-development uh, strategies that I employ, which I learned from my tennis coach back when I was 15 to 16, Funny story about that, I actually got banned from playing uh, tennis in Australia um, because I was a little brat and used to smash rackets and I actually screamed out in a in a qualifying final because I, I used to play at quite a high level but I screamed out, uh, I have the touch of a rapist um, and that didn't go down too well with the referees and I ended up getting disqualified. Um, my parents banned me from competing uh, for six months and I wasn't allowed to uh, touch a racket for six months because I'd broken them all and my, my sponsorship with Yonex uh, ended uh, quite abruptly after that. But I digress. Uh, my tennis coach taught me how to meditate because that was all I could do during our training sessions was meditate and visualize. Uh, so something I do every night before I go to bed after I've listened to a podcast, either yours or Steve Hall's, uh, is or 3DMJ. There's actually quite a few podcasts that I listen to. Um, Sigma Nutrition, There's the list goes on. But uh, I visualize. I visualize my success. I visualize what I want uh, my subsequent days, months, uh, and years to look like and, you know, how I want things to unfold, whether it's, you know, me standing on the bodybuilding stage in September. Um, that's been a frequent visualization for me. So just, you know, uh, ingraining that 
you know, visual of me, you know, being in the trunks, having the tan uh, on under the hot lights, you know, feeling uh, deplete, not depleted on stage, but just that that empty feeling of you know being sub six seven percent body fat. Um, so that's been a really vivid uh, image I've been replaying in my mind of late. Um, as is you know smiling with my kids more frequently. So that that's a little bit of an unusual one, I guess, for most people, but something when I yeah find the pressure of life getting to me as I visualize just smiling with my kids and the the sense of warmth that comes with that. And I think the more real we can make these images in our mind, um, often it becomes a lot easier to, uh, yeah, perform and, uh, seek out the actions and behaviors necessary in the real world and in real time to make it a reality. So yeah, that's a little one I do as well. Awesome. Perfect. And, uh, and my, my last question to you, which is something that uh, I just find interesting, is that um, you, you have um, several uh, very well-running businesses and um, you're working with a lot of people and, and JPS, um, I imagine, I mean, I don't know exactly your numbers or whatever, but I imagine you're, do, you're doing well. And it's, it's just incredible to me that you're still, you know, uh, doing these podcasts, um, interviewing people, organizing these, uh, these conferences and whatever. I, I would imagine that this is not necessarily something that you have to do you know putting out these infographics on on instagram and uh, you know it's like like your podcasts which you're interviewing amazing people you're doing your vlogs you're providing a lot of value which are i guess they're not necessarily vital to your business what like what drives you to do these things oh what drives me to do it that is a very deep question abel um i would say <laughs> there is some innate desire to help people because to be honest I've never been helped and I've never been good at receiving help um, I'm very stubborn as I'm sure a lot of people are starting to realize now I run to the beat of my own drum um, but I, I've recognized that you know help can be extremely beneficial so I know through my own experiences how beneficial and you know useful having somebody to help can be. So I guess at the end of the day, everything I do is about trying to you know, be there to help somebody in some way, shape or form um, better themselves, their understanding of, you know, fitness and just to inspire, you know, some positive change. So yeah, I don't know, man, it's not money. It's not accolades. It's not Instagram followers. Uh, those things are very superficial. And to be honest, you know, I couldn't care less about those kind of things. But I think, you know, hearing, um, back from a lot of the people who you know, do watch my content or who have worked with our coaches or myself um, and have them tell us, you know, just how much we improved their well-being. Um, that, that makes my heart very warm and that brings a big smile to my face. So I guess the desire to help people, as corny and cheesy as it sounds, man, um, yeah, that would be it. Perfect. Awesome response. <laughs> and uh, cool, man. This was this was uh, really, really incredible. And thank you so much for sharing everything that you've shared. We are just uh, finishing at the hour mark, which, which is quite a feat. Um, so yeah, very last question. What kind of resources would you like people to check out or what are you working on that you would like people to see? Yeah, so I guess just uh, check out the JPS YouTube channel, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I put out a fair bit of content across those mediums. Uh, working on a contest prep ebook with Steve Hall, uh, Pascal, and one of my colleagues from JPS, Lyndon Purcell, um, basically teaching people 
how to approach a contest prep and not screw themselves up like I did, like I know that uh, Steve has in the past. So, yeah, it's not uh, a contest prep uh, book that's a do-it-yourself kind of guide. It's more so a here's what to look out for and here's how to handle this process uh, that you're going to go through. So that's going to be uh, hopefully coming out very shortly. I'm uh, just finishing up a few chapters on that. But, yeah, keep an eye out for that and I hope that it's uh, beneficial for some of you. Perfect. All right, Jacob, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Not a problem, Abel. Thanks for having me, man. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave a comment and subscribe if you watch this on YouTube. If you listen to this on iTunes, please leave a rating to help this stuff grow. SoundCloud and Podbeam, you can just follow me to be notified on future episodes. And to be a contributing member of this podcast, join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group where you can drop ideas about future podcasts. I very often ask my listeners for tips and advice on who to get on next. So if you're interested in getting into discussions like that, be sure to join the Facebook group. And if you don't want to go through the searching process, just click one of those links in the show notes slash video description. It is all there. All right. Thanks for hanging around up until now and see you next time.